God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by accosting both the people and animals of Egypt with boils. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and Moses shall toss it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. Then it will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will turn into boils breaking out with sores on every person and animal through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln, and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses tossed it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on every person and animal. The soothsayer priests could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the soothsayer priests as well as on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The ancient Egyptians associated several of their deities with the healing of diseases. Principal among these were the goddesses Sekhmet and Isis and the god Heka. Wilkinson has described these deities in the following ways. Isis first. According to the the theology of the Heliopolitan sun cult, Isis and Osiris were both the children of Geb and Nut, but Isis became the wife of her brother, and assisted him in ruling Egypt during his mythological kingship on earth. After Osiris's death and dismemberment at the hands of his enemy Set, Isis, along with her sister Nephthys, mourned inconsolably and began to search for her husband. Eventually the goddess found her husband's scattered parts and reunited his body, or in another version she found his body enclosed in the trunk of a tree. Through her magic, Isis revivified the sexual member of Osiris and became pregnant by him eventually giving birth to their child Horus. This underlying mythological role as the wife of Osiris is the basis of the importance of the goddess in all of her other aspects. After the birth of Horus, various dangers threatened the young god, but throughout them Isis steadfastly cared for her son. She gained healing for him in one instance from a potentially lethal scorpion sting, which became the mythological basis for her healing powers, and those associated with the so-called Sippy or healing plaques of Horus the child. As the wife of Osiris and mother of Horus, Isis was also the symbolic mother of the king who symbolically was the incarnation of the latter god. Magic is central to Isis's many roles, for it is through magic that Osiris was revived, Horus conceived and protected, and the the deceased, whether royal or commoner, assisted in the afterlife. The magic of Isis was also invoked in many spells for protection and healing often imploring the goddess to come to the aid of a child or individual as if he or she were Horus himself. Most of the myths relating to the goddess stress her magical ability. Heka. For the Egyptians, Heka, or magic, was a divine force which existed in the universe like power or strength, and which could be personified in the form of the god Heka. Mythologically, Heka was believed to have existed from the time of creation, and to have empowered the creation event so that the god Heka could likewise be seen as a creator god. Because of his great power, the pyramid texts make it clear that Heka was feared by the gods themselves. Sekhmet was the most important of Egypt's Leonine deities. As with many Egyptian goddesses, she had two distinct aspects to her personality. On the one hand, a dangerous and destructive aspect, and on the other, a protective and healing aspect. Because Sekhmet was said to breathe fire against her enemies, she was adopted by many Egyptian kings as a military patroness and symbol of their power in battle, and bore martial titles such as Smiter of the Nubians. Even the hot desert winds were said to be the breath of Sekhmet. 
The Leonine goddess was also directly associated with plagues, often called the messengers or slaughterers of Sekhmet, and this too could be tied to the king's power. The goddess also had the power to ward off pestilence and could function as a healing deity, even being called Sekhmet, mistress of life. The priests of Sekhmet are known to have been organized for the cultic service of the goddess from Old Kingdom times, and also appear to have played an important role in the magical aspect of medicine in later, in later times, reciting prayers and spells over the sick, along with the physical ministrations of the physicians. Sekhmet, particularly, was associated with the livestock-related deities we discussed in Chapter 6, particularly Hathor and Ptah. Disease has been a constant companion of humanity throughout recorded history, and every religious system of which we are aware included teachings and rituals involved in the diagnosing and healing of diverse maladies. In the West today, disease has been understood to be a quite natural part of life on Earth, caused by concrete natural elements of the material universe. Western medicine has come to understand microbes, genes, pollutants, radioactive particles, mutations, rogue cells, the human immune system itself, and so on, as causes of human illness. For the ancient Egyptians, diseases were not merely material afflictions. For them, diseases also had spiritual aspects, and they often occurred as a result of the supernatural activities of divine beings. In the West today, these assumptions may seem superstitious and ignorant, and it is certainly true that our understanding of the material aspects of human illness are far superior to those embraced throughout most of recorded human history. However, even today, the spiritual aspects of illness are recognized and oftentimes remain confounding. Today in the West, we generally associate the spiritual aspects of illness with what are called psychological maladies and effects. For example, depression, personality disorders, placebo effects, and so on. Though few in the West today would call these illnesses and effects spiritual, the existence of disorders and items that seem to affect the spirit of a person, sometimes without a discernible biological cause, at the very least reveals that our ancestors' concern for the spiritual aspects of human experience were less naive than the West has often assumed. When God afflicted the people and animals of Egypt with boils, God was inviting the Egyptians to call upon their deities of health and healing to remedy them. It's unclear whether this plague affected the Israelites, though it's likely that they were spared. The last two plagues did not affect the people of Israel, and in Exodus chapter 9, verse 11, the text specifies that the boils were on all the Egyptians. Even so, the text is silent as to Israel's experience in this instance. Even more, once again the book of Exodus does not record the cessation of this plague. Pharaoh did not ask Moses to pray for healing, and the text does not indicate that Moses did so. It is possible that the boils too remained until the last. What is clear is that neither the soothsayer priests nor the gods of Egypt could bring relief to the Egyptian people. Which god of the West is akin to these gods? The Egyptian gods of health and healing today have been subsumed by the Western god of medicine. In the covenant of Sinai, if one were stricken with a debilitating illness or a possibly contagious disease, one was to present himself or herself to a priest for evaluation. An example of this procedure can be seen in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 1-3. through 3. The text says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When someone has on the skin of his body a swelling, or a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons of the priests. The priest shall look at the infected area on the skin of the body. This process was not unique to Israel. 
from the ancient Egyptians to the Babylonians to those living in the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. The sick went to religious leaders and religious shrines to seek healing. As Angel Lise Burnett has explained in her article, The Religion in Medicine, an exploration of healing through, the, through examination of Asclepius and the Epidorian Lamata, in Prandium, which is the Journal of Historical Studies for the University of Toronto, Misauga, Mississauga. She wrote this. In ancient Greece, good health was always accredited to the gods, and therefore being cured of one's illnesses was believed in all circumstances to be a gift of mercy from the gods. After performing the required rituals at the sanctuary, the ill went to bed in hope that Asclepius would appear to them during the night to answer their prayer request. Asclepius was a hero god, one of the twelve Olympians, and was the god of medicine. According to Greek mythology, Sharon, being the father of the medical art, taught Asclepius his medical skills, and with Athena's gift of Gorgon's blood, Asclepius, a surgeon, was able to master medicine by delaying death, and in some cases, bring some back from death, until being later forbidden to do so. Asclepius subsequently retired to become a divine consulting physician. In oracles and through dreams, he advised treatments and prescribed drugs to be taken by his patients or to be administered by doctors. Asclepius's myth and the Asclepiaea served to provide an alternative to home remedies and self and family care to those who were burdened by their illnesses and suffered in pain. Another important aspect to the Asclepiaea was the priests. They were the highest authority at the Asclepiaea. Directed the sequence of the sacrifices and worship and the rituals that needed to be closely followed in order to receive the cure. Today in the West, medical practitioners are the new priesthood of the God of Medicine. This is not to say that there's anything sacrilegious or idolatrous about partaking in or benefiting from medical science, particularly since medicine today is intentionally materialistic and largely dismissive of the spiritual aspects of health and healing. We might remember that even the Apostle Paul's traveling companion Luke was a physician and seemed to have to con continued to be so after having come to faith in Jesus. However, the gatekeepers of the knowledge of healing and the communion with the gods necessary to diagnose and treat illnesses were priests in the ancient world, and they are now medical practitioners. The Christian scriptures reveal to us that God himself provided guidelines for health and healing to Israel in the covenant of Sinai, as we saw previously. And Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, was approached by large crowds seeking healing and freedom from debilitating diseases. A series of such instances can be found in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. The Gospel says this, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials, named Jairus, came and upon seeing him fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for twelve years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she had been saying to herself, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power from him had gone out, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. 
But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. While he was still speaking, people came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher further? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. After entering, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all aside, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was in bed. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old. And immediately they were completely astonished, and he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this, and he told them to have something given her to eat. Mark's inclusion of the name Jairus probably indicates that he was a significant person still known to Mark's audience at the time of the writing of the Gospel, and yet he humbled himself before Jesus, and not just for anybody, for his daughter. This action is hardly surprising to Western people today, but in the culture of Jesus' day, daughters were often not afforded this sort of compassion and care. Moya K. Mason, in her, in her article, Ancient Roman Women, A Look at Their Lives, has explained thusly, Women did not have a choice between having children or not. They also could not overrule her husband if, she, if he chose to expose a newborn. Many female infants were exposed by their families because they could not carry on the family name, and they also required a dowry at the time of their marriage. Eva Cantarella in Pandora's Daughters states, The earliest power that the father could exercise over a filius familius was that of exposure. At birth, in a highly symbolic rite, newborns, male and female, were deposited at the feet of the father. He, without explanation or justification, either recognized the child as his by picking it up, or withheld his recognition by leaving it where it was. The recognized child became a member of the familia. The unrecognized child was abandoned to the river or left to die by starvation. Most of the exposed were girls, but some were sickly or weak-looking males. On an oxyrhynchus papri, a letter from a husband to a wife instructs her to let the infant live if, if it's a boy, but if it is a girl, expose it. It was as simple as that. This practice of exposure greatly reduced the female population, as did the neglect of girls. Augustus was so concerned with the decline in Roman population, particularly in the aristocracy, that he passed both the Julian Laws in 18 BC and the Papia Popeian Laws in 9 AD. These laws placed penalties on celibacy and not marrying, and rewarded marriage and having children. Neither set of laws really helped to greatly increase the population of Rome. There is ample evidence that daughters pose similar challenges for Jewish families in this time period as well. Now that's not to say that Jewish people practiced exposure, which was an early form of abortion, in the ways common in the broader Roman culture. But in the case that a daughter was dying, Jairus's humility before Jesus on her behalf would have been striking, particularly to Mark's most likely Roman audience. Jesus, of course, did not show any hesitation in responding to Jairus's request, nor to coming to his daughter. So Jesus set out with him. But on the way, Jesus encountered another marginalized person, a woman, who had endured a bleeding disorder for 12 years. She had been treated by many physicians, but her physical health had only declined. 
This was another example of a person the society of the time would have seen as less worthy of special attention. According to the covenant of Sinai, a flow of blood made a person perpetually unclean, can be seen in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 30. And beyond social ostracization, Mark's description of her experience with doctors seems to have been oppressive as well. He says, suffered a great deal. As Sharon Dowd has recounted in her commentary reading Mark, this woman's experience was not uncommon. Dowd writes this, Indeed, when one reads the descriptions of treatments for uterine hemorrhage that were practiced in Mediterranean antiquity, it's easy to see why the author of Mark would characterize the woman as having suffered much under many physicians, and as having become worse rather than better as a result. The second century CE physician Serenus describes treatments developed by his predecessors of the previous two centuries and expresses a preference for relatively drastic vaginal suppositories, for instance, oak gall, pulverized frankincense, calcites in equal parts, together with sweet wine or ashes of a sea sponge soaked in raw pitch and then put inside. That's the end of the quotation. This ritually unclean, socially marginalized, physically tormented woman took a great risk in touching the hem of Jesus' garment. According to the covenant of Sinai, her touch alone would have made Jesus ritually unclean. But her desperation came with a certain clarity, the certainty that it was worth the risk to her and to him. She bet that Jesus' health was catching, and that rather than making him unclean, he would make her clean. She was right. She was healed. And Jesus realized what had happened despite the crowd. And what did Jesus do once she was exposed? By the covenant of Sinai, there should have been a penalty. But instead, Jesus praised her. Let's recall Jesus' words to her and to Jairus' daughter whom he healed afterwards. This is Mark 5, verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be cured of your disease. And then later in verse 41. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one was to know about this. And he told them to have something given her to eat. When Jesus restores a person, he restores not only their lives, but their personhood, their dignity. Here Jesus credited the woman for her faith and pronounced a blessing on her for full and complete healing. Jesus restored her not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, and communally as well. Similarly, with respect to Jairus' daughter, Jesus left the impression that she was only asleep, guarding the knowledge of the miracle, which could have followed her, and instructed them to feed her. Jesus again showed social and personal concern for this girl. These accounts illustrate several distinct differences between Jesus and the various priests and gods of medicine throughout human history. First, the goal of the priests of medicine is healing, the extension of life, oftentimes without respect to the quality of that life. Now, That's not the fault of such practitioners. It's a limitation of healing without the one true God. The body can be made to survive, but often it cannot be made whole again. When Jesus healed a person, he made them whole, physically, spiritually, and socially. Second, for the priests of healing throughout history, healing comes with a cost, and it has often been a high one. Many chronically ill people like this woman who suffered from a bleeding disorder, or like a father watching his daughter wither away before him, will do anything to be saved from these illnesses. It was this very desperation that led the woman to risk what little remained of her place in society by touching the hem of Jesus' garment. 
and it was what led her time and time again over the course of 12 years to subject herself to often torturous medical treatment. It was also this desperation that led a powerful man to humble himself before a wandering rabbi. Priests of healing are often in a position to ask any price for their expertise, and a great many people are desperate enough to agree to any terms upon the promise of healing. But Jesus exacted no price from those he healed. He asked only that they trust him. Now, many a religious faith healer throughout history has seemed to ask the same. Many have even appeared to offer healing free of charge. But there is always a price nonetheless. They desired testimonials, referrals, passionate stories to be shared widely about their power and their gifting. This, too, has distinguished Jesus. Both of these miracles were done in secret, and Jesus instructed the disciples who witnessed his miracle to keep the matter to themselves. The priests and gods of medicine, both in the ancient world and in the West today, cannot offer true healing. Certainly, through our incessant eating of the tree of knowledge, we have learned to combat many ailments with which our ancestors would have been forced to live and to die, apart from divine intervention. Perhaps this has made us feel like gods. If we took our present knowledge back into the past, the ancients would certainly see us as godlike. But to heal the body, or to suppress malfunctions, is not the same as restoring wholeness. The ancients paid all they had to delay death another day. This was the stock and trade of the priests of health and healing, and many a family today has fallen into financial ruin for similar reasons. Perhaps this story makes clearer than most others that Jesus' ministry was less about easing physical distress and discomfort and more about restoring the person to dignity. Some have argued that these stories indicate that Jesus embraces the unclean and the profane and therefore there are no distinctions, no inside or outside, no clean or unclean for Jesus. However, such a conclusion would be to read this story without reference to the larger context of Mark. In speaking of the demoniac in the story immediately previous in Mark's Gospel, Dowd again has written the following, For the Mark and Jesus, there are limits to inclusiveness. That which destroys the self and makes community impossible is driven out, and wholeness is restored. The good news for this tormented specimen of humanity is not that he is accepted just as he is, but that he is transformed into the person his Creator intended for him to be, no longer distorted by powers that are alien to his created self. I suspect the same applies to all the miracles in this set of stories, from the demoniac to the 12-year-old girl to the woman afflicted with 12 years of bleeding. It's not the acceptance of Jesus that stands out in these stories. It is the restoration of Jesus, Jesus' desire and capacity to make the unclean clean, the possessed pure, the dead alive, and Jesus' capacity to bring healing to the whole person while at the same time humbling himself and protecting those who he healed. These things stand apart from all who stand in his place as alternative saviors. Many a person has pursued a career in medicine for noble and upstanding reasons. Medicine is not a god to all who practice it, nor is it an idol for all who benefit from it. Medicine becomes a god when it presents itself as, or becomes in our eyes, a savior. Medicine becomes an idol when we place our hope and our future in its wisdom. Medicine becomes a god when it presents itself as the final authority, the only recourse, the gateway through which any who wish to enjoy life and thriving must pass. God is about to assault the Western God of medicine in the days to come. For presenting itself as the first and last recourse for human life and thriving, as the savior of human life, 
God will bring judgment. For robbing the desperate of their livelihood and dignity, God will bring judgment. For oppressing medical workers and failing to honor their need for Sabbath and rest, God will bring judgment. For draining the dying of every last resource without hope of recovery or future wholeness, God will bring judgment. For placing profits over health and riches over the restoration of wholeness, God will bring judgment. For chasing people away from faith in God and encouraging them to place saving faith in medical practitioners, God will bring judgment. As we discussed in chapter 2, episode 2 of this podcast, really, the COVID-19 pandemic has been the blood in the water. But another disease is coming that will confound all who attempt to cure it. As God sent boils upon the ancient Egyptians, he is about to send boils on the nations of the West. When this plague arrives, it will remain until those tasked with the healing of the nations, from the least to the greatest, cry out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, for mercy. When this cry is made, God will hear. May those who have ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches.